0: Hello and welcome to another episode of the Clinical Pharmacist Podcast. As you know, we are continuing our clinical series. i really excited to have GP Dr. Emma Woodcock join us today to talk about HRT. So, of course, I'll be hosting this session and I have my lovely co-host, as usual, Regina Kassam. Before we get into it, let me just introduce our guest today. So as I said, we have Dr. Emma Woodcock, who has been a GP for 28 years. She's currently a GP partner at Orchard Surgery in Horsham. She's the board director of innovations in primary care limited. She's the education training workforce development lead IPC, and also the advisor for the additional roles with Sussex training hub and also a council member for the NAPC, which is the National Association of Primary Care. Emma Woodcock has a special interest in women's health, particularly menopause and HR team. So really excited to have you on the show. Emma, thank you so much for making the time to be with us today. I know you're really busy, but yeah, really excited to have you and welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Runa.
1: I'm really happy to be here today. And um, I can't Believe I do all that stuff. Listening to that awful list, there's a lot of overlap there. But um, yeah. thank you
0: for Well, I'm sure you do a lot more. 28 years is a very long career, and I know that's not where everything started as well. But th- that's all I could fit in. But yeah, I know you are um, very much an expert in this area. So really interested to get your expertise on this matter. So I think just to start with, it'll be nice to give our audience an idea of you know how you became interested in this clinical area of menopause and HRT, what experiences you have as well. Thank you. Yeah, so um, I think my interest in women's health in general
1: really began right back in medical school. So I was always fascinated by how women, particularly when I was working in London, seemed to really struggle to get access for women's health support. And, you know, I did um, some great sort of sessions in uh, outpatients in London, And then started to include that in my rotations once I qualified. So I decided to do gynaecology and I did that for almost six years actually and got on the Southwest Thames rotation, which was really hard, quite challenging to do for me. And eventually decided I needed to uh, perhaps move into general practice, but retained my interest in women's health. And as time's gone on, you know, I've really tried to champion women's health in primary care and had the opportunities as I've, you know, sort of progressed in my career to think about how we can innovate for women in the community and to really encourage others to share learning and to share experiences with patients and to get patients involvement in what we're developing. And so when I moved to orchard surgery, which was about three years ago, it was a really sort of great opportunity to, to develop the services for women, first of all, within my practice, and then now looking outwards to share within our primary care network and within the Horsham community. So it's kind of grown from there. And. It pretty much timed with that increased interest within the social media from celebrities sharing their experiences, particularly around the menopause. And I think that's allowed women to feel that it's okay to come forward with their symptoms and because of that, they're expecting help. And so one of the things I've really been focusing on with my federation is education of professionals because women aren't getting to see people who are up to date on the latest information about all aspects of the menopause and so they often come in and have an experience that isn't perhaps the best it could be and then get rather put off by seeing healthcare professionals about this area so we're really focusing on education for all clinical professionals and opening up access to patients in different ways in primary care
0: fantastic well that's lovely to hear and yeah, I think you're absolutely right. You know, there's been such a, a demand for healthcare professionals, particularly in primary care to really be equipped with the right knowledge and skills to be able to, to cater for the patients, as you said, it's becoming, you know, pretty hot topic now. And how do you think pharmacists can support patients with menopause and HRT, those pharmacists who are already in primary care? And from your experience, have you seen pharmacists making much of an impact in this area? So I think
1: pharmacists are ideally placed to support women. So I actually teach some clinical pharmacists. I offer them clinical supervision, have done for for two or three years. And I've seen them show increasing interest in this area. Pharmacists in my practice also do that. And there's a real opportunity for the additional roles of the clinical pharmacist based primarily in general practice. Also for other members of the clinical team, such as nurses to get more involved. And I think it doesn't really matter whether you're a man or a woman healthcare professional. I actually think it's more about how you relate to women in those consultations that really matters. And I teach three male clinical pharmacists who all are interested in the menopause. And one chose this subject for his IP course as his special interest. And he continues to develop that and to have special appointments within his templates for women for HRT reviews.
0: That's really impressive. Thank you. So I think now that we know, you know, we've explained to our audience how much of a need there is in this area for education to support our patients. So we know that pharmacists are very well-placed to support patients. Pharmacists are already making a significant impact. Let's get into some
2: clinical questions. So I think Rohina's got a couple for you. So over to you, Rohina. Thanks, Emma, for joining us. And thank you, Runa. So Emma, as you mentioned, you've been helping to support pharmacists that have been dealing with HRT and using this as part of their IP clinical areas. So what advice can you give to these pharmacists on how to deal with conversations about age and HRT and when should we ideally be bringing patients off treatment? So this is a really
1: good question and it's also one that um, I'm often asked by my colleague GPs as well. And one of the things that we have noticed over the last few years is that there is a reluctance amongst some GPs to continue to prescribe HRT, even if it's required for symptom control. So there's a lot of uncertainty about when it is the right time to ask women to stop using HRT or to reduce the dosage. So I think there is a a general move away from this very fixed amount of time. It used to be the case, or you can only take it for five years and then the risks start to go up. I think that is no longer those of us who are doing a lot of menopause care. It's much more of a tailored approach to the individual. So we know that in general, the benefits of HRT, if you are less than 60, so 45 to 60, generally outweigh any of the risks, but that is based on an assessment of the individual. But taking the population as a whole, that is generally the case. As you get older, in late 50s into 60s, other factors come into play. So we know that, the, for example, there is an increased risk in the population as a whole as, as it ages for venous thromboembolism. So that factor starts to become slightly more significant. It's still at a very low level, but that might prompt a conversation around the delivery of HRT and moving towards those safer preparations, such as the transdermals. But also, as women go into their sixties, they start to develop perhaps more other conditions that might mean that the use of HRT needs to be reassessed in light of those to whether people develop diabetes hypertension for example and those conditions don't mean that a patient can't have hrt it just means that we need to be monitoring them more carefully and perhaps just taking that into account for any changes and i think the other factor for me is looking at the dosage of hrt you know what are we trying to achieve At that age, what are the predominant symptoms and what is the appropriate dosage for that? So a real perhaps move away from having to relieve those vascular symptoms of hot flushes and night sweats and more into feeling of tiredness, um, lack of libido, dryness down below. And those symptoms perhaps warrant a different approach to the dosaging as well and perhaps an increased use of topical hrt because it has a better safety profile and therefore being able to reduce systemic hrt so i think there's lots of factors at play
2: absolutely and i think that gives you a lot of food for thought as well around the difference as you said safer treatments like the transdermal patches etc just to find out what's right for that particular patient in question so I think we may have already just touched on this in your answer previously, how would you handle like a consultation with a patient, say if it was an older postmenopausal patient in their sixties that wants to come in for HRT treatment for the first time?
1: So this is now becoming an increasingly common scenario as women start to hear more about it from their younger friends, family, and I often have patients coming and saying, oh, I feel like I've missed out on something. I should have come 15 years ago, but I didn't. Now I want to know, you know, whether this is something that would be beneficial to me. So my consultation for them is first of all, identifying any risk factors, their reasoning for wanting HRT, what specific symptoms they're hoping to relieve and are there perhaps other ways of relieving those having done that. might need an examination, particularly if the issues are around dryness of the perineum or the vaginal area. So I would generally look at that. And then I think it's a case of explaining to them what are the risks of taking hrt what are the benefits and having a a conversation where you really empower the patient with information so i do that by providing some resources for patients i try and keep them very not overwhelming quite specific and i signpost from those resources specific areas for that patient and i'll often then say to them Why don't you go away, have a a read and a think, and then I'll give you another appointment and come back and see me where we can have a more in-depth conversation. But I always want to make them aware that I'm not saying no to that, unless it's very clear that they have, you know, maybe had a personal history of estrogen-dependent breast tumor or something like that. But even then, you know, there are other options that we can pursue so I think the first thing for women like that is always to listen, listen to their concerns. That goes obviously for any patient, but particularly for people like that who they're often quite nervous about it and they sometimes struggle to talk about the sort of longer term impacts of menopause, such as cognitive dysfunction, memory concerns, brain fog and so on. And that's a very sensitive area. Patients are often concerned that they think they might be developing dementia. So really going into that in detail and then reassuring them that a lot of us are like that. And those kinds of symptoms are actually the ones that really benefit from group consultation, which we might touch on later. But understanding that others have those symptoms goes a long way to reassuring patients.
2: Thank you for that. I think, as you said, listening is something that's so key as well, because those patients have... Probably spent a lot of time thinking about this before they've even come to the consultation as well. You just mentioned Emma that there were resources that you would signpost your patients to. Are there any particular resources that you find particularly useful for patients? Yeah, so
1: um, for patients at the moment, I'm signposting them to the Newson Health website. Louise Newson is a GP. With a special interest i think she does really just do the menopause and she's an amazing website and there's also an app which is free but in particular the resources on that website are excellent they're up to date they're very designed to answer the questions that we all get from women about the menopause and they are easy to read and so i signpost there for women who are wanting more information in an easily digestible format I also use the British Menopause Society and a lot of women do like to look at professional websites as well. They feel like they're seeing what we're seeing as well, and they're getting all of that information. Nice guidelines. Some women like to look at those. So those are my sort of general go-to menopause. matters would be another one that I use particularly for information around alternative
0: therapies. Perfect. So thank you, Emma. Right, so I you, yeah, Emma, that's really useful advice there, especially around the resources and just taking sort of like a holistic approach and, as Raheena said, really listening to that patient, find out what their needs are so that you can address them appropriately. So I've got another clinical question for you, which is something that a lot of pharmacists come across and they're really unsure what to do when they're faced with this scenario is a journal bleeding. So how would you advise a pharmacist who might be doing a review, a HRT, routine annual review, And the patient reports unscheduled vaginal bleeding. How should the pharmacist handle this, do you think? So I think the most
1: important thing, first of all, is to take a really clear history. want to be asking, you know, how long has the bleeding been going on for? Look at the regime. Are they missing any capsules or tablets, or are they not replacing patches when they should be? Sometimes it is due to irregular progesterone taking, but sometimes it's down to a Myrina IUS that is perhaps coming towards the end of its life, and often women start to bleed in the sort of fourth or fifth year of that. So just getting some timelines in place, what is the bleeding like? Is it related to sexual intercourse? And then the next step in the process is a vaginal examination. And so we need to signpost uh, to a GP appointment for that. And at that point, I would normally examine the patient and then I would refer them for a scan, depending on how long it's been going on for. So if it's just have been very recently and I can't find another cause and one thing to always look out for possible infection. So sometimes taking a swab is a good idea, but if it is, if it's been going on for a while to arrange a scan, usually at the two to three month mark, just to look at the endometrial thickness and a general pelvic scan is really helpful. With postmenopausal bleeding, where there is no HRT involvement, then that is usually a referral into secondary care under
0: the fast track two-week wait. I see. Okay, fantastic. Thank you for your insights with that. It's really interesting to see not only when to refer, but also when the pharmacist does refer. What does the GP go ahead and do? So, so that's really nice to have an understanding Gas. Thank you for that. And also, are there any other red flags that uh, you could think of that pharmacists should be aware of that would need referring to a GP? So
1: one thing that women complain of as they get older and move towards their sort of later fifties and early sixties is often dryness of the vagina and soreness down below. And these are symptoms that aren't always improved with systemic HRT. So sometimes you do need to think about whether additional topical estrogens in the form of pessaries or creams might be helpful, but these things should never be prescribed unless you've actually had a look. And I do see patients who've had them prescribed and they've actually got a dermatological condition such as lichen sclerosis. Sometimes there's an element of a lack of oestrogen there and some atrophy, but it isn't always the case. And so would say that clinical pharmacists should refer to the GP for an examination
0: in those circumstances. I see. Okay, thank you. That's a really interesting point, actually, especially with remote consultations. You know, a pharmacist might be speaking to the patient over the phone and the moment they mention vaginal dryness and you automatically assume it's to do with, you know, reduced estrogen and uh, just go ahead and uh, prescribe something. So,
2: that that's really handy to know thank you reina i think you had a question about testosterone didn't you yes absolutely so what can you tell us about testosterone treatment and what has your experience been with it for patients that currently are using it how have patients responded and what are your thoughts on the area i mean testosterone
1: is fascinating for me because years ago probably 15 years ago I was in, in practice, putting in testosterone implant um, under the skin. And so this rose really from the, my previous career as a gynecologist. So I felt uncomfortable doing that in primary care. So we were using small testosterone pellets that you make a small incision into the skin of the abdomen and insert underneath, and then basically use a strip to hold it in place until it heals. And these would last for six months and they were absolutely fantastic. But they started to uh, become difficult to get hold of in this country and eventually weren't available on the NHS at all. Now they're only available privately. That That's not a mainstream option now. Currently in the UK, there are no licensed testosterone products for women. So we have to use products in an unlicensed way. And I think this is really important that whoever the prescriber is, is aware of that, and that they are feel confident in going outside of those licensing boundaries. So not many clinicians in general practice will prescribe testosterone, so some will feel comfortable with it once it's on a prescription has been prescribed by a secondary care or someone like me with a special interest, then they're happy to continue. One of the things that we find often goes by the wayside is the monitoring. So whilst we generally don't monitor oestrogen levels, we must monitor testosterone levels. It is one of those hormones that women really notice the benefits of. And because of that, they often feel like the more they have, the better things will be. So they tend to overuse it. And I think as a pharmacist, that's really important to be aware of that Look at their usage over the last year when you see them for a review and make sure that they have had the monitoring they need in terms of testosterone, blood test, sex hormone, binding globulin, and an androgen index. And I think that's really helpful for patients to see what kind of range they need to be in. So when we prescribe testosterone, the indications for it from a menopausal perspective would be a lack of energy, tiredness, lack of libido, and those are the key areas that one would think about adding it in. It shouldn't be given before you have maximized the dosages of estrogen in particular. And so because there's now more sort of public awareness of the benefits of testosterone, I see patients asking for it, as their first line so they say well actually i've got these and i'd rather just have the testosterone and so i have to explain to them that they need to have estrogen and progesterone hrt first or just estrogen if that's appropriate and unless we've maximized the doses of that we wouldn't be thinking about testosterone and so patients generally understand that and want to quickly maximize their doses of estrogen they can then go on the testosterone so that has to be managed with the testosterone itself currently there are supply issues with it so you have to sort of move around from different formats and that's tricky because the milligrams per dose are different and so you have to make sure you get that right and also you're using a product that is very difficult to measure the amount so you're you know being asked to use a pea size amount or a sachet spread over 10 days. And that's actually when you can't see inside the sachet, that's actually really difficult to do. So the amount will vary as well, which I think you know isn't massively helpful. You know, When we finally do get a product designed for women, that would be amazing. So we normally do a baseline testosterone blood test and then check again at three months. And then I might go to six months if it's stable and then yearly. But I think also making it clear to patients that the side effects of testosterone. So the ones that are commonly seen are things like mood changes, irritability, the development of acne on the face or the back, increased hair growth. And I've seen that most commonly on the face. So around, you know, where a man would have a beard, you start to see some facial hair growth. And so I use those side effects not to frighten the patient, but to really explain why they shouldn't take more. they are prescribed generally the effects of testosterone take longer to kick in than using estrogen to ease hot flushes and that's because the symptoms are often very long standing and you're starting with a small dose you don't want to go in at too high a dose and so it takes a while to get to the point where patients feel
2: that it's really beneficial perfect thank you i think that was actually very useful and i think it's very insightful actually because It gives us a great overview of, as pharmacists, what we should be looking for in terms of overuse, making sure that it's not being ordered every month and ordered early each time, as well as looking out for bloods, but actually also knowing what the indications are and how to manage that patient's expectations and understanding of what the medication can do for them, as well as understanding what they need to try first. And it's not going to be first line. We need to try all the other therapies first. So thank you. I think that was really informative.
0: Yeah, thanks, Emma.
2: Because as we know, pharmacists don't
0: necessarily go on to prescribe testosterone nor get the opportunity to review any patient thoroughly who are on testosterone therapy. So it's really interesting to hear your personal experiences and all those different things that you look out for when you're doing those reviews. So thank you for sharing that. I've got another question, which also comes up quite often amongst the clinical pharmacists, is to do with contraception and HRT. Pharmacists often ask, is a progesterone only pill? You know, is that sufficient as an estrogen component of the HRT? Can you mix that with HRT if they're already receiving the sort of progesterone component, too much of progesterone, too little progesterone. And yeah, so pharmacists are often confused about those topics. If you can shed some light on this, I would really appreciate that.
1: No, it, is, it is actually a really relevant topic at the moment because of all the shortages within HRT. So, you know, we've had to look around and see what else can be used as the progesterone component. And then that goes out of stock. So you have to find another one. And that's been really challenging. And I think particularly for pharmacists, because, you know, as GPs, we often say, oh, I'm not going to deal with this. I'm just going to send it to the pharmacist. And then you guys are left trying to Think, you know, what's in the pharmacy, but also is this appropriate? So one of the challenges around this has been the use of unlicensed progesterone, different types of progesterone to replace what we would have used as a sort of standard and licensed progesterone for HRT. And, you know, a lot of the choices initially, the suggestions from the British Menopause Society and the Royal College were around the use of methyl progesterone acetate and norethisterone, which is all very well, but they're not licensed for that. And they also, because they're the sort of older style progesterones, they have quite a sort of high androgenic side effect profile. And so women tend to get more side effects from those. And for those women who were being swapped off Utrogestan, which was not available for quite a large part of last year, I think it was quite hard for them in terms of side effects. So when those women come back to me with side effects, I was then sort of, thinking, okay, what do I do now? So then some guidance came out from the British Menopause Society around the use of desogestrel mini pill as an HRT component, completely unlicensed, of course. And the evidence for it is limited. However, you know, in terms of looking at best practice and, you know, in theory, what would be acceptable, it was agreed that the use of two desogestrel tablets a day Ie 150 would be suitable as HRT cover, and actually I thought that was brilliant because there is this group of women that I'm seeing more and more of now who are in the perimenopause and are still having periods, and of course are still potentially fertile up to the age of 55. So how you know this is perhaps a great way of killing two birds with one stone, as it were, and in fact lots of my patients have really liked that. And so I've been giving them two desigestrel and the estrogen component of their HRT. And actually they've had very few side effects from that, if any. So that for me has been, again, our license and I let the patients know that. But I would say that most GPs probably wouldn't be comfortable prescribing that unless, like me, they have a special interest. In terms of general contraceptive advice because we are seeing more perimenopausal women we must not forget that they are still potentially fertile and although the risk is low even you know between 51 and 55 there is still a small risk of pregnancy unless a woman has not had a period for 2 years before the age of 50 or a year afterwards and so, using something like desigestral or at least giving them clear contraceptive advice is really important. And one of the difficulties for perimenopausal women is, you know, they say to me, Can I still get pregnant? How do I know? How can we find out? And of course, we can't be 100% certain. If somebody is already taking HRT or they have a form of contraception that masks their periods, then we cannot be sure. And so as a precaution, you have to ensure that you have covered a contraceptive risk until we know that they are not. So either they come off hormones and we can clearly see they haven't had a period for a long time or they reach 55. And many women choose not to come off hormones and just use a method until 55 when they can
0: be absolutely sure. Okay, fantastic. That, that's really helpful to know. Really interesting to hear about the the two gastrointestinal pills, because as, as you say, Not all GPs may be comfortable prescribing that. So um, pharmacists who are listening, don't rush to go and prescribe, discuss it with your GPs, um, but it's good to know that there is that option and if the GP gives a go ahead, then it's really good to know. Reena, I think you had one last question, didn't you?
2: Yes. So other than pharmacotherapies, there are other areas which you've been working on, such as group consultations and really interestingly, the menopause cafe. Can you tell us some more about this and the benefits that you have seen for your patients?
1: Yes. I mean, for me, this is a really exciting part of what we do in Horsham because what I was seeing as the sort of main GP doing women's health was that I was repeating myself several times a morning saying the same things to different patients. And I also spoke to those patients about whether they would be interested in a group discussion around menopause and that kind of peer support environment. And everyone was very keen that we look into that. So did a little bit of research. Couldn't find really anywhere else that was doing that, that I could speak to. And so I just spoke to my health coach in Horsham and we developed a structure for two sessions for menopause group consultation. So we have women attending between 12 and 14 women normally, and we divide them into two groups. And the focus is half on learning about the menopause and learning about HRT solutions from myself. And Rachel, our health coach, focuses on lifestyle changes to help with the menopause and to Look at your overall well being and setting yourself up for the next sort of 30 years of life post menopause. And we structure the sessions loosely around those topics. But before we invite women, then we ask them what they would like to talk about. And so they come up with themes, ideas, questions, which we pull together before we start the sessions. And we will start our conversations based around those. And Conversation flows, patients share their experiences, their concerns, their worries, and everybody benefits from that. And so each session lasts for an hour and a half, and we do two of those for each cohort of women. And then we ask them for feedback at the end. I've been doing that for about 15 months and it's evolved over time. And about halfway through last year, some of the women who were in that particular session asked whether we could set up anything outside of the NHS setting. So I did a bit of research and found this concept called the Menopause Cafe, which is menopausecafe.net and it's a voluntary uh, setup, which is supported by this charity called the Menopause Cafe. Started in Scotland, in Perth and has now spread worldwide. So I joined the post WhatsApp <laughs> chat um, and learned what everyone else was doing all around the world and have been in some of the, the meetings. So in Horsham, we have a, a co-host team. So there's about five of us and we run a session probably on average every couple of months and we run it in one of the local cafes in Horsham. And it really is a peer support session where people can come along and not listen to healthcare professionals but just talk about the menopause. And that can be for anybody, any sex, any age, anyone who's interested in the menopause. So we've run a few of those sessions now. Our next session is coming up in February. And this time we've decided to add an information session into it. So the concept itself doesn't allow you to do that. But what it does do is allow you to run two sessions back to back next to each other. So in February, we're we're doing a menopause session called How to Have a Good Menopause, which I'm doing the first one of, which is information in general about the menopause. And then we will then move to uh, the cafe setting where we will just have some drinks, chatting about the menopause, talking about that session and so on. And so the healthcare professionals that are there are not there in that capacity. We try not to talk shop. We're really there as women who are interested in the menopause. I think it's a it's a great idea for women who perhaps find it difficult to go into the healthcare setting and just want to share their experiences. And then an offshoot from that is that we are going to run a cafe for the staff in the local practices as well, so that we can have that as part of our sort of workplace
2: well-being for older women. That sounds fantastic. Like in terms of shared experiences, I feel that a lot of patients would find it so beneficial, especially hearing that others have been through it or going through it, different stages, just being able to get kind of advice and support, not even in a healthcare professional capacity, just from others that are interested in the area as well. So it seems to be a great piece of work and a great area that you seem to be developing there. It's actually really satisfying, not just for me, but for the health
1: coaches in Horsham. We've worked collaboratively with the wellbeing hub in Horsham, which is part of Horsham district council and with the cafe and with patients. So a couple of patients are also part of our co-host team. So it's been a really lovely partnership to develop. And in fact, our MP is very supportive of it and often sort of tweets the next event for us, which is amazing.
2: It sounds amazing. It would be lovely to see it kind of spreading further outside of Horsham as well. So, fingers crossed that it does. I can imagine it being very beneficial to a lot of patients. Yeah, I think it sounds fantastic. And I think it's lovely that
0: you're, you know, sort of trying to maximize your impact, Emma, because, uh, you know, as we said at the start, it's the topic that, you know, a lot of Women are in need of sort of expert care from, and you really are sort of trying to maximize how you can help the wider population. So that's really fantastic to see. up with fantastic work. And thank you again for joining us for this podcast. We've actually had a very beneficial discussion, almost like a training session. I'm sure anyone who's listened in has learned so much. I certainly have. I'm sure Rahina has as well. And so thank you for all your detailed answers. I'm afraid that's all we've got time for. I'm sure all our listeners are disappointed. I wish we could go on. But we do have some training and some free resources that we can direct you to. At Clinical Pharmacist Academy, we have a free resource that we've developed for hormonal replacement therapy, which goes on to explain how treatment is initiated, all the different therapies that are available, how to do a routine annual review. I encourage everyone to go ahead and have a look at that. And we also have a training program on how to conduct annual reviews as well. Emma, if you've got any resources or any advice that you can give to pharmacists on how to upskill themselves in this area, we'd love to hear it. I'm happy to share the resources with you. Okay, fantastic. So yeah, have a look at the uh, descriptions. We'll have them available to all our listeners. But yeah, thanks again, Emma, for joining us and sharing your fantastic expertise with us. It's been a really informative session. And thank you also, Raheena, for joining me again. Thank you. I thank you both. Take care.